Hi, guys. It's good to be with you. It's good to sing songs of praise to God. Amen? Really, really good. Um, the traffic. Not as bad as I thought it was going to be. Not as bad, especially on Sunday morning. Did anybody have like freeway issues coming in today? You, because you live in Las Vegas or something. <laughs> <laughs> I was a little worried about all of that um, combination of traffic craziness and heat and all of that. Um, my wife decided she was going to get away from all this, and she's in Texas with her grandkids as she was last week. Um, pray that she will come back. <laughs> I think there's a chance she will because it's been like 108 every day that she's been there. So there's that. She uh, and her sister went together and they are sort of doing a mini VBS for four of my grandkids. Something going on every day, all day. It's incredible. Um, they are having way more fun than anybody should be having. And one of the things they're doing, because it's a million degrees there, is that early in the morning they go out and they have like uh, some sort of water spraying apparatus and they run around and they stay in their bathing suits all day and that kind of stuff, and, and I, she keeps sending me pictures of this, and I'm thinking, man, this, this does not hold a candle. When I was a kid, I grew up down in Orange County, first of all, down by the beach, it doesn't get to be 108, um, but in the neighborhood where I lived, most of the people had swimming pools, so uh, we were always swimming at somebody's house, usually our house. The way it worked for us would be we would, uh, at summertime, there's no school, we'd get up in the morning, get a bunch of guys together. I don't know how we got people together, because we didn't text. I don't know how we did that. I, I think it was like smoke signals or something. Somehow, I don't remember how. All the, all the kids in the neighborhood would meet at the park. We would play basketball or football or whatever until we were just drenched with sweat and sunburned and it was too hot to do anything else and we would head back to somebody's house and dive in the deep end of the swimming pool. And there's nothing quite like diving in the deep end of a swimming pool when you're hot and sweaty and it's miserable out. And we did everything in the pool the rest of the day. We, we had baseball games in the pool and we had football games in the pool and we had wrestling matches in the deep end of the pool, which was hard to survive, but we did. We, we played frisbee games in the pool. We always had diving competitions, right? We did cannonball challenges. Who could make the biggest splash? We did belly flop challenges, and I always won that. I don't know why. Um, and once in a while, we would just live in the deep end of the pool, and once in a while, um, a really old person would use the pool, like 40 or something, you know? And... And I noticed something different about old people at that time, and that is the way they enter a swimming pool, <laughs> right? We dove in the deep end or cannonballed into the deep end, but old people hold the rail and go down the stairs slowly one foot at a time, getting their body acclimated to the cold water. And I noticed that. The other thing I noticed about old people when I was a kid is that they, they wade into the shallow end, and then they stay there. That's where they spend their time in the pool, just relaxing in the shallow end. And I always thought, that's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Might as well sit in a bathtub. What is wrong with these people? 
Um, of course, now I hold the rail and enter by the steps, <laughs> right? I, I, I just chill in the shallow end and try to stay away from any children who might splash me and mess up my hair or something like that. Um, but it always seems so strange to me. You got a whole swimming pool. Why would you want to stay sitting in the shallow end where there's nothing going on? Because all of the fun and all the adventure and all the excitement was always in the deep end. At least that's the way I understood it. Last week, you're like, how's he going to connect this? Watch this. Last week, uh, we started wading into the shallow end of Romans chapter 8, what is, in my mind, perhaps the greatest chapter in the whole New Testament. I love, love, love Romans chapter 8, and there is a depth of uh, truth, a depth of doctrine, a depth of understanding of God and what He is doing in our lives and how He works that is found in Romans chapter 8, and we sort of began by sticking our toe in the shallow end. Uh, We used the steps, and we sort of got in uh, casually. But I went back, I was looking at this, and I'm like, wow, it's only shallow by comparison to the rest of Romans chapter 8. There's, there's depth even in the shallow end of Romans chapter 8. Um, and Romans chapter 8 has such depth and significance to it that uh, I, I, this, this series that we've been doing on the gospel according to Romans, the good news I've been saving these last two weeks of the series for the last part of Romans chapter 8 because there's just so much there for us. Um, We got through about the first half of Romans 8 last week. If you've got your Bible, you're going to want to turn to Romans chapter 8. If you don't have your Bible, your phone probably has it or your iPad or the person sitting next to you or whatever, find Romans chapter 8. And where we left off last week, we got as far as verse 18, so we're going to start there today uh, for context. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us, Paul says. He, he says, I'm, I, I'm telling you that the challenges that you're facing now, they may be big, they may be strong, they may be powerful, they may be even overwhelming to some degree, but I'm telling you that even when you pile up all of those challenges, they don't hold a candle to the significance and the greatness of the power and the abundance of life that God has waiting for us. And so we got into chapter eight and um, That section that we looked at last week was kind of about the wonderful spirit-filled life, the fact that it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can live this life. So many people, religious folks, have been trying to live a victorious life by keeping rules and doing the right things and jumping through hoops and and, uh, staying religious and all that kind of stuff. And and God says, listen, it's not ever going to be done on your power. This life can only be lived successfully by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit becomes a part of your life, a part of your existence when you come into a personal relationship with Jesus. And so we've got to have this wonderful Spirit-filled life that starts with the Spirit. And that brings us to verse 18. And verse 18, which we just read, is kind of like a really good movie trailer, or, or maybe it's like, um, 
in the Marvel movies, the superhero movies, you old people probably don't know this. At the end of all the Marvel superhero movies, if you sit through all of the credits and you get to see who's the gaff and who's the assistant to the second assistant to the makeup assistant and all that kind of stuff and you keep reading and watching and watching. If you pay the price for the 10 minutes that those credits roll, when you get to the end, suddenly there's another scene that you didn't see in the movie. Did you know that? Yeah, sure you did. So you get to that end and you get to watch this other scene and always in the Marvel movies, this other scene, it's like 30 seconds or a minute, but the only purpose for which it exists is to whet your appetite for the next movie that's coming. So they just set you up by showing you a new character or a new challenge or a new situation. And, and I felt like when I was reading Romans, we got to verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. It reminded me of those trailers or those, those sneak peek scenes that says, hey, there's, there's something coming. Get ready. Get excited. There's something coming. The whole point is to whet your appetite for that. And in verse 18, Paul drops a hint about what lies ahead. He says that the sufferings in this life, however difficult they may be, are not worthy to be compared to what is to come. And our job is to go, hmm, what's to come? What is to come? Think about that. Uh, However hard the difficulties of this life are, they're so minuscule compared to the blessings of what is to come. That tells me, you guys, that something amazing is still to come. There's something beyond what we see. And by the middle of Romans 8, which is where we are now, we've been going through this book and looking at the gospel. By this point, if you've been here for any or most of these sermons, you should be dancing through the week. You should be exalting and excited and overjoyed because you think about all the incredible blessings that God has given us. There is monumentally good news in the book of Romans for us, and it should have changed our lives by now. I mean, Paul has made his argument perfectly clear for seven and a half chapters. He said, we all stood condemned before a righteous judge without excuse, Nobody good enough, nobody religious enough, enemies of God by birth and by choice, facing a death sentence and no grounds for appeal whatsoever, silent, ashamed, head hanging down, nothing to say on our own behalf as we stand before a righteous judge who knows the truth knows everything about my life, knows every thought that passes through my head, knows the condition of my heart, and how are we ever gonna puff out our chest and lift up our chin and look him in the eye and say, I'm good enough? We can't, and that's what Paul is telling us for several chapters. And then we get to that incredible place where it says, but God, but God who is rich in mercy, took on our trial, he took on our problem. He saw fit to rescue us from a fate that is worse than death, not because we deserve his love, not because we've done anything to merit any kind of favor from him. After all, we made ourselves his enemies. That's already been shown. 
but he rescued us by grace through the substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's what we've been talking about by week, for weeks. And we got to chapter eight, verse one, where it says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Christians around the world rejoice. That's good news. He's adopted us as children. He's sealed us in the Holy Spirit. He's given us life when we deserve only death. And then we see verse 18 and it talks about what is to come. You go, oh, what more could there possibly be? What more could we possibly ask for? What more could we possibly need? But, but you know, like a late night host on the Home Shopping Network, Paul writes this, but wait, there's more. And, and then he begins to tell us what the more is. And verse 18 hints at the fact that there's something even better that is still to come. Want to know what it is? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's start at verse 19. Elbow the person next to you. People are already beginning to snore. Wake them up. Here we go. Verse 19. I'm in the wrong place. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is waiting for something. For the day when all of this is revealed. Verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but... Also, we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit and knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I wish I had time to unpack the depth of those verses. There's a lot in there about the creation and people and how we're longing and awaiting this final day. And, and I would love to spend a couple of weeks unpacking the details of the last days and what it's going to look like when Jesus comes back and restores the world and all of that kind of stuff. But that's not what this sermon series is about. Remember, we are not studying verse by verse through the book of Romans on Sunday mornings. We're doing that on Saturday mornings in our men's ministry and our women's ministry. But we're looking at the gospel in the book of Romans, the good news and the bad news and how it all applies to us. And so um, let me just summarize what Paul is saying here in these verses that I just read. If you are a Christian, 
you are made alive in Christ. If you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, if you've been made a child of God by his gracious adoption, then there is something that belongs to you that you are not yet experiencing. That's what he's telling us. There there should be something that our heart yearns for, a sense that this is not all there is. As wonderful as life in Christ can be this side of heaven, this is not all there is. There's this tension, if you will, between the already and the not yet. And we live between the already and the not yet. And there is something to look forward to. Yes, I've been forgiven. Yes, I've been justified. Yes, I've been sealed in the Holy Spirit. Yes, I have the hope of salvation. But I also live on this side of heaven. And I'm keenly aware that this is not all there is. That, that we have yet to experience what life is actually really designed for. So much so that we could say that this life on earth in Christ is the appetizer before the gourmet meal. That's what we're living in. I have this certificate of adoption, as we saw. I, I, uh, I am listed on the legal paperwork that says I am a rightful heir to the kingdom of God. I have all of that, but I haven't yet received my full inheritance. And when I woke up this morning, I quickly realized I'm still here on earth. I knew that because my bones ache. I knew that because I still have a mortgage payment. I knew that because my neighbors right outside my bedroom window were playing rap music until four o'clock in the morning last night. And you know what else? Ice cream is still fattening. But your suffering is not to be compared to the glory that is to come. I have been promised heaven, but I am clearly not there yet. Can anybody say amen? Amen. Um, I mean, that leaves room for fear. What if God changes his mind about this whole thing? What if I do something to mess this up? And I make God mad. What if he kicks me to the curb and, and I'm now on the outside? What if God were to disown me despite all that he's done to purchase me? Um, how can I ever rest in his promise when I know my own heart? I know my own mind. I know my own behavior. And I know that I was, just like Paul says in Romans 7, I was not good enough for God and that's why Jesus had to come and pay the price for me. And now that Christ has saved me and justified me, guess what? I am still not good enough. I'm still struggling in the flesh. I'm still stumbling. I'm still making mistakes. I'm still going after the things that I want that God doesn't want for me. All of that is still true. And, and what if this all falls apart? Will I ever be able to rest in God's promise this side of heaven? The answer is an emphatic yes. And here's why. The assurance of my salvation does not depend on my faithfulness. It depends on God's faithfulness. 
So I'm going to say that again. The assurance of my salvation does not depend on my faithfulness. It depends on God's faithfulness. So, so, so that means that I could screw up a lot of things, but God is still faithful. It means that though my heart goes astray and I am prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. He never goes astray. He stays faithful to me. And, and my faithfulness doesn't depend upon, or my salvation doesn't depend on my faithfulness. It depends on God. It doesn't depend on my power. It depends on God's power. It doesn't depend on my works. It depends on the works that God has already done and his unfailing grace to me. You see, God is at work in our lives right now, and the work he is doing has an eternal completion date. He's working in your life today for that which will happen eternally. And that's a little mind-blowing. That's a little hard to wrap my mind around when I've only lived on this side of heaven. And, and this whole idea of, of life that goes on and on and on, life that is perfect, life that is unmarred, I don't even have anything to compare that to. I don't know what that is. I think, well, that's like UCLA wins a national championship every year. Well, first of all, that's a dream. <laughs> and second of all, it ain't never gonna happen. And if it did, it wouldn't be fulfilling to even me. Weird. The things you think you want are not really the things that will fulfill you. And so God is doing this work that is moving us in eternal life, which is not only a, a, a length of life, but a quality of life that we know nothing about. His grace in our lives right now is working for an eternal impact. Look at verse 28. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Is that great news or what? Every Christian I know loves that verse. Like, you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody who's ever read their Bible who doesn't already know that verse. That God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and, call, and are called according to his purpose. It's such a wonderful promise. It's even more wonderful, by the way, than most of us even begin to realize. It doesn't say that everything that happens in the Christian life is good, amen? Right? That was, a, <laughs> that was not the kind, yeah, that's the kind of amen I expect. It, it's... It doesn't say everything is good. After all, we're still in the flesh. We're still in this broken world. And, and even as Christians, we're still subject to all kinds of maladies. Sickness and sadness and just the consequences of sin. Sometimes our own sin, sometimes the sin of others against us. And we still endure Natural disasters and broken hearts and terrible diseases and financial shortfalls and all the stuff that plagues us. This verse doesn't promise to do away with that. 
What it does is promise that today's struggles are not the end of the story. God takes all things, good things and bad things, fun things and devastating things. God takes all things, throws them in his mixing bowl in heaven, mixes them up and creates out of them something incredibly good. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so we look at Romans 8, 28, and all we're really seeing is the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more there than meets the eye. Most of us read this verse and we start uh, thinking like Annie, you know, the, the little orphan in the musical. She's looking forward to one thing. What is it? Yes, I was going to sing it, but I think I won't. Um, <laughs> Tomorrow, that's all she wants. Doesn't matter how gray the skies are because the sun will come up tomorrow, right? So if you just tell yourself this possibility thinking mantra, life will be grand, right? But what happens if it's raining tomorrow? Then you gotta look forward to another tomorrow and keep telling yourself that the next tomorrow will be better and the next tomorrow will be better. And I'll tell you what, I've watched more than one Christian lose heart in the battle Because they had this idea that this verse promises me that whatever happens in my life, it's going to work out just perfectly the way I want it to. And that is not what the verse says. It's not what it means. It's not what it teaches. This verse is much more than a positive thinking mantra to get us through a difficult day. This is a description of a deep and powerful eternity-altering truth and a work that God is doing in each and every one of his children. See, sick Christians read this verse and think, I'm going to get healthy again. But we've been to a lot of funerals for Christians, haven't we? Unemployed Christian reads this verse and he thinks, I'm going to get that job I'm interviewing for. But sometimes we stay unemployed. The single Christian who wants to get married thinks, okay, I read this verse. This is God telling me I'll be married by the end of the year. But you know, it's God's will for some Christians to be single the rest of their lives. Incarcerated Christian reads this and thinks, man, I'm getting out of this cell soon. But the parole board has something different to say. And when that happens, the reason I'm making a big deal of this is because when that happens... We have claimed a promise that God did not make to us. And then when the promise did not come about, we have blamed God. And it is so easy to turn our back on God and miss out on what he has for our lives because we read into the verse what is not there. It does not say that everything will be fine for you and you will get everything that you want. It's talking in a much, much bigger sense. This whole passage is about the eternal, ongoing work that God is doing to prepare you for heaven. And so you may get healthy. You may get that job. You may get married. You may get whatever it is that you're hoping for, but you also may not. Let me tell you, though, you will get the promise of God. The promise of God is sure because God is faithful. 
And when we read those ideas into this verse, we end up disappointed with God. And we think he doesn't keep his promises. Or we think maybe it doesn't even exist. But all of those are examples of Christians who are thinking way too small. This verse is much bigger than that. God promises to work everything to good for us, but we don't get to define the word good. God does. You see, the definition of good according to God is far better than whatever it is that you think would be good. It's just far better. And, and to really understand verse 28, you have to keep reading. Which, by the way, can I just do an aside here? It's true for every verse in the Bible. This idea that we go grab a verse in the Bible, pick it up and go, this is my verse, this is my life verse, this means everything to me. And, and once you lift it out of its context, it loses its meaning. And then you read your own meaning into it and again, get mad at God when it didn't happen the way you thought he meant it. So, so we always look at the context of scripture. And here in verse 28, let's read it again. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to, to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. What's the good that God is promising here? He is promising, according to verse 29, to use the good and the bad in our lives to conform us, to mold us, to shape us into the image of who? His son. He's making us like Jesus. That's what the good is. He defines the good. And you're thinking, oh, but if I could just get that $2 an hour raise, that would be great. He goes, oh, your, your, your vision is so small. So small. God wants to mold you into the image of Christ. God wants to perfect you. He wants to mature you. He wants to prepare you for heaven. Why is he allowing us to suffer hardship and pain? What is God doing in our lives this side of heaven? Why is he making us wait to experience the full ultimate blessings of our adoption as his children? Because he's molding us, he's shaping us, he's preparing us, and he's, he's sculpting us into the image of Christ. You see, this world has a way of shaping people into its mold, right? Do you, do you remember high school? Do you remember how your idea of what was a cool fashion depended upon what your friend's idea of a cool fashion was? Do you remember how your slang changed in high school to match whatever your friends were doing? If you even go to, let's say you move from beautiful, sunny Southern California to uh, Arkansas, I give you six months before you sound like you were born in the South, right? We get molded, and we don't just get molded in the exterior things, we get molded in the interior of our hearts by this world system, this world's values. The world is constantly trying to shove us into its mold. Turn two pages in your Bible to the right to Romans chapter 12. If it's three pages, sue me, I don't know what to tell you. Romans chapter 12. 
Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. See what it says? What the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This is God's definition of good for you. So that when it says he causes all things to work together for good, what's good is that you would not be squeezed into the mold of this world, but that you would be transformed by God making your mind new by the power and person of the Holy Spirit. That's what's good. So this world is working overtime to squeeze us into its mold, but God is also at work and he has overcome the world. He's using the experiences of your life to make you more like Jesus. The good experiences, the painful experiences. God's plan for your life goes way beyond the fleeting things of this world. John, 1 John, go to 1 John, turn to the back of your Bible. Don't go all the way to Revelation, but you'll find John's letters in there, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And I want to invite you to look with me at 1st John chapter 3. He further defines this for us. 1st John chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. So the theme is the same. He's adopted us. He's made us his children. How good is that? He's about to tell us. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. He's saying, don't forget there's something beyond what you can see. It has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. This is that sanctification process that we talked about last week. He's shoving us into the mold of Jesus so that we begin to look a whole lot more like Jesus and a whole lot less like us. He's making you more like Jesus. What's Jesus like? Well, he's humble. Philippians chapter 2 tells us about his humility, how he did not um, regard clinging to the equality of God the Father as his own right, but instead emptied himself to become human. Jesus is humble. I wonder if God may be using your struggles to help you become more humble. Jesus loves the unlovely. I could quote you 15 verses about that, but you know the scripture is filled with that. I wonder if God has placed some difficult people in your life. Don't look at the person next to you. I wonder if God has placed some difficult people in your life because he is making you more like Jesus. Jesus lived his entire life on earth with eternity in mind. Everything he did was for eternal significance. I wonder if God is allowing you to fail in some of your earthly pursuits in order to get your attention off of earthly pursuits and onto things that have eternal significance. You see, there's a bigger picture here than what meets the eye. 
And so I ask you to think about this. What kinds of challenges are you facing today? What if you were to look at your challenges, that, that impossible boss who has incredibly high standards and is never nice to you, that difficult relationship with your teenager where you just can't seem to see eye to eye about anything and you wonder if it's ever going to be okay, that continual bad news that you get when you go to get a checkup at the doctor, I wonder if what you're dealing with right now is meant to be used by God to press you into the mold of Jesus. And I wonder if all the effort we make to get out of these problems is just prolonging the inevitable. And I wonder if our focus on our challenges is keeping us from focusing on eternal things. There is good news, my friends, and plenty of it. God loves you so much that he sent his only son to pay the price to buy your pardon. God is so committed to you that he has sent his Holy Spirit to seal and assure your salvation and to guarantee your eternal life and to be a pledge and a helper and a comforter and a guide for you on this earth. And though we see now as in a mirror dimly, God is doing something eternal in you so that you'll be molded and shaped into the image of Jesus Christ so that you'll be fit for eternity in heaven. And next week, we're going to see just how powerful that assurance actually is. And our lives will never be the same. Let me invite you to stand and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you now as uh, those who have hard time seeing around the corner. We take by faith that what you say is true. We know that your promises are sure. We know that your track record is impeccable. We know that you have proven your love for us over and over and over again. And yet, Lord, we get distracted by what we can see and sometimes distracted by the fact that there are many things we can't see. Build our faith, Lord. Help us to embrace the life that you have given us as an exercise to prepare us for eternity. Mold us into the image of Christ. Lord, the world is dying for true pictures of Jesus Christ. The world is lost because they haven't yet met anybody who reminds them enough of Jesus. God, won't you please make us those people? Fill us with your spirit. Prepare us for your plan for our lives. For we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.